You're listening to the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in daily context. I'm Justin Gary. In the world of sports, many a game has hinged upon the instant replay, something we are used to in modern televised sports. It has not always been around. The NFL first started experimenting with it during football games in the 70s, curious at first how long it would delay games. In the 1980s, they tried instant replay out a bit, but the technology would be too hard to install in all the stadiums since they calculated they'd need at least 12 cameras shooting each play to get a true view of all that took place in the field. Instant replay has gone through a number of phases and controversies. Some good calls, some not so good, depending on which team you are rooting for. But the groans from the stands often expressed when the phrase, upon further review, is said from the field, the court, the booth, or the broadcaster, well, instant replay. Instant replay seeks to look at the most minute details. Did the running back step over the line while dodging the defensive line? Was the shot made prior to the buzzer? What happened first? Did the player slide into home before being tagged with the ball? In each scenario, the instant replay, seeing the details and the call of the umpire, the ref, or the judge, can grant approval or count the effort worthless. Disqualified, no points, no gains, all in vain. Jesus is ministering in Israel, stirring things up. New wine to the dismay of the old wineskins. All that he is teaching and doing and living, a contrast and conflict to the religious system of the day. He's drawn the attention of the crowds with the miracles, the teachings, and the authority, all of which the religious leaders seem to lack. But he's also caught the critical eye of the same religious establishment. First, they saw what he was doing and questioned within themselves. Then they said something, albeit not directly to Jesus, but to those close to him. Then they spoke up, challenging Jesus as he ate with those that they felt were out of reach. And Jesus used an image to paint a picture. You can't put a new patch on an old garment because it will tear. And you can't put new wine into old wineskins or they will burst. The religious leaders are showing some of the first stress fractures of bursting as they stretch and strain trying to contain the work of God that is beyond them. And now their cameras are out, ready to record Jesus' every move, to slow it down, to review each play, to study every detail, seeking to disqualify him gathering around their proverbial monitors to analyze and scrutinize and criticize, seeped in their legalistic mindsets that have added man's interpretations to God's intent when it comes to the law. But their calls and conclusions on the plays carry no weight, since Jesus himself knows the rulebook better than anyone else, and not just the rules, but the heart behind those rules. And we look at uh, at the clash of conflict of the instant replays, picking up again in Mark 2, verse 23. All eyes are on Jesus, even when he's just passing by. It's like the celebrity trying to catch a quiet or private moment, just taking their kid to school or going to the store or attempting to go on a quiet getaway. The religious paparazzi hiding behind each bush. Any apparent misstep captured and published in the pharisaical tabloids, as their growing desire to discredit him takes root. Jesus is passing by with his disciples, and this is what we see. Mark 2, verses 23 and 24. Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Headed on the Sabbath, we aren't told where to or what for. We know scriptures show us that Jesus went to the synagogues, and at times even shared the message, a visiting rabbi. Clarifying the gospel in light of the Old Testament truths the Jewish listeners came to hear. 
Jesus preferred the teaching, taking leave from the healing-seeking crowds at the time, going from town to town, village to village, preaching the kingdom he liked to teach. Perhaps it was such an outing, having gone to or from the synagogue, or a visit to a home, as he had just been to Levi's house, where, much to the dismay of the religious leaders, he had dined with tax collectors and sinners, being light in a dark place, and many had followed him. Perhaps it was an outdoor Bible study, by the sea, from a boat, on a hillside, as the crowds were hungry to hear the truths that were becoming synonymous with Jesus' preaching ministry, eager to listen to the authority with which he spoke. But whatever the reason, I see that Jesus was out and about with the disciples, not locked away in some study or cloistered hidden in some temple. Jesus was out and about, teaching, discipling, living. He was redeeming the time, an unspoken time clock and countdown, just three short years to set up the world for his death, his burial, and resurrection, and the ministry of the church that would be built upon him. At the time of this recording, we're finishing up some time with family, enjoying our last moments in the islands that I still call home, even after having lived elsewhere for many years. And when your days are numbered, when your time is limited, you make the most of it. Head to the beach one more time. Go to that restaurant once more. Take in the view for just another glimpse, because soon you'll be back on a plane back to the, well, back to the not-so-Hawaii day-to-day. So we get up and out, making the most of it. Jesus does the same with his disciples out on the Sabbath. Could have been easy to call it a day after a week of being busy. Now, granted, he was honoring the Sabbath, communing with the Lord, fellowshipping with the brethren, feeding on the scriptures, worshiping in community. And though he wasn't resting per se and napping in a cool room somewhere, he was honoring the Sabbath and keeping it holy. It was set apart for God, for God's use. Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So this path leads through the grain fields, or perhaps they knew a shortcut. And as they go, the disciples are taking some of the grain to eat. Reaching out, the kernel swaying in the breeze, plucking them off, rubbing them between their fingers, then eating them, popping them in their mouth like candy, a small snack along the way some energy to refresh after all they had given up, and a power snack for what would come next. Plucking the grain. This was allowed in the Jewish law, something they could do. They were not stealing or shoplifting, though you could not harvest your fields. Plucking some grain was okay. There were provisions to be able to take a bit from the fields, even if you were just passing through, so they weren't stealing or anything. Even instructions to not harvest the corners of your field so that those less fortunate could take and be provided for if they were in need. This was some biblical social assistance. Now, in our on-demand world, this goes against our individualistic mindset. Someone passing through my field, passing by my yard, they're not supposed to take any fruit from my trees or any flowers from my bushes. If this is my field, then I want to reap all of it, maximize my output, my profits. And if I let people take as they walk by, well, that's robbing me. In Israel, God wanted them to remember that all that he had, all that they had was his, that anything they had, it was just a stewardship. God allowing his blessings to pass through their hands. So provisions like this in the law, it helped them remember to hold on to things lightly, to maintain understanding that it was all God's and up to him to do with it what he will. Are there things that you are holding too tightly? Have you forgotten that it is all God's to do with as he pleases? Keeping the heart of a steward is important to do. A steward did not own anything. 
They just manage the wealth and resources of another. But any gain, profit, or even loss was not theirs personally. It was the master's, who owned it all in the first place. All that we have is from God, and we will give account for it. Just what are we doing with it? If he has given us one talent, are we taking it and bearing it? Or are we using them and multiplying them, taking what is his and using it for his glory? Someone this day was supporting the ministry, and they didn't even know it. The Lord's disciples were being fed from these heads of grain, and the small sacrifice of this farmer, it was now a part of an eternal plan, as these disciples of Jesus are being nourished so that they can keep serving. This merciful and gracious provision in the law that said, sure, go ahead, take some grain if you need. God is good. The Bible says he causes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust, and that he gives rain on the earth and, and to water to its fields, not just for the prosperity and bank account of the productive farmer, but to bless his people through what was in the fields. It's one reason why God warned that when a people were disobedient and turned from obeying the voice of the Lord, that they could look for proof of their disobedience in their fields, telling them the heavens which are over your head shall be bronze and the earth which is under you shall be iron. The Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and dust, no longer fruitful and full of grain. But the Lord here, showing his goodness to these disciples, fulfilling what Jesus said, not to worry about tomorrow, about the next meal, where he said in the Sermon on the Mount, Look at the birds of the air, for they neither, neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? These disciples were walking in the reality of that, plucking these heads of grain and eating them. Jesus' heavenly Father taking care of them, providing for them, even as they just pass through this field. But while the disciples do this, the Pharisees are out in the bushes filming the whole thing, scrutinizing each move in the instant replay, and they cry out, Upon further review, this activity here is disqualified. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath, it says there in Mark. Now, this was not true, though they probably didn't even realize it themselves. God had called man to honor the Sabbath. No work was to be done, something God established after the six days of creation. After man had been created and God rested from his work, now to enjoy the fruit of his labor and fellowship with man, the whole point of creation in the first place. But by this time, the religious leaders had morphed the Sabbath into something entirely different, interpreting the laws out of paranoia of breaking them in such ways that they were burdens rather than blessings. They were so concerned about doing something wrong that they had canonized a whole bunch of explanations of what I really mean, what really meant not to work. Like if you broke a bone, you couldn't set the bone because that was work. If you had a gash, you could stop the bleeding, but give no stitches because that was considered work. You couldn't spit on dirt since that spit would hit the dust and mix together to make mud, which would be considered work since you made something but spitting on stone on or pavement was okay because that wouldn't make a ball of, of dirt. You couldn't carry burdens that weighed more than a dried fig. So you had, if you had false teeth, you, you had to remove them that day since wearing them would be the same as carrying them, which was work. With these strict interpretations, man began to try to find ways around them. So for example, you could not tie a knot on the Sabbath since that was work, though a woman was allowed to tie a knot on her girdle on the Sabbath. So, for example, if you needed to get water from a well, you couldn't tie a rope to the bucket to pull it up since that would be work. But a woman could tie a knot to the bucket with her girdle so she could tie the binding from that to the bucket to use at the well to draw water. 
they were finding ways around the Sabbath laws, or the Sabbath interpretations of the laws, at least, that the Pharisees had put in place. In modern times, for example, you can't do business on the Sabbath, no buying or selling. So if you pay with a credit card on the Sabbath, the transaction won't go through until the next business day. So technically, you're good. How did they get to this point? Well, in addition to a Sabbath day, the Lord had called for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament to honor a Sabbath year, saying of the land in Exodus 23, But the seventh year you shall let it, the land, rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and with your olive grove. This was to keep the land fruitful, so it would not be overworked and depleted. Well, Israel did not uphold this and overworked the land, and it is one reason they went into captivity into Babylon for 70 years. After 490 years in the land, they had not observed the Sabbath every seven years. So do the math. Every seven years for 490 years, 490 divided by seven, that's 70. So when Israel went into captivity, one of the reasons was payback for the land, to let the ground go fallow for 70 years, that it might rest before returning. The nation had turned its back on God, though in many other ways. So an agricultural practice was not the main reason they went into Babylon. That area of obedience was just an expression of their disregard for God's rule over their lives in many areas. Interesting how that small area of not leaving the land fallow showed their lack of trust. Oh, keeping the land fallow in the seventh year? Does God want to limit our profits or test our faith in his provision? That the lie that God's commands rob us or keep us from something good from us or limit us? No, God's commands are always good for us, are full of his love. But Israel had blown it in many ways. Religious hypocrisy, idolatry, wicked practices, mixing with the pagan nations. They had a name of being God's people, but they were far from it. So when they return from Babylonian captivity, we see the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that talk about that and the rebuilding that took place. They were keenly aware that their sin and disobedience to the commands of the Lord were the cause of them being taken into captivity. And they had learned their lesson and vowed never to let go of the commands of God again, never to go into idolatry again. So what did they do? They held tight to the commands. They went into overdrive, and man began to interpret the law and place all these additional measures in place and to define it so intricately so as not to fall again. And the Pharisees developed, meant to keep the people on the straight and narrow. And while the intention started out good, they had gone too far. And by Jesus' days, they had messed it all up, placing unnecessary burdens and interpretations of the law on the people. And this leads to this conflict here in the fields as the disciples take of this grain and eat. It says, So when the Pharisees said to him, Look, why did they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? That was not really accurate. They were just doing what man had interpreted what was not lawful on the Sabbath. Jesus broke no laws, ever. According to the law, he was sinless. Though he did not uphold man's expectations and interpretations, nor did he feel compelled or pressured into doing so. Because Jesus understood the heart of the Father behind each of the commands. So this accusation that the disciples are doing something unlawful when eating, that was inaccurate. They saw it as harvesting and processing. As they grabbed the kernels, tore off the chaff, broke the kernels between. That's what the Pharisees saw it as, harvesting and processing. As they took it between their fingers and they ate and they did all this work. This was work, harvesting according to man's interpretation. And it was prohibited in their complex and inaccurate religious system. Oh, the legalistic tendencies that we have. 
to make rules, to set rules, all in an effort to keep us right with God. But they can quickly dissolve into something totally different. I had a friend who was so set on obeying God in every way and, and being an example. He used to always use a crosswalk and never jaywalk. And in college, as we went from the dorms, there was a road that was closed to traffic. And coming down the sidewalk, the crosswalk at the bottom was positioned a bit weird. And to get to it, you had to walk out of your way 20 yards or so. So everyone walked across the road, cutting corners a little bit, walking in a direct line from point A to point B, which meant crossing the road in a small section until you met up with the oddly aligned crosswalk. But the road was closed. There were no cars on it. But my friend, so intent on doing right all the time and being a witness, went out of his way to walk down the sidewalk until the start of the crosswalk. It was sort of comical, but annoyed everyone. Just cross the road, buddy. Now, my friend is no longer crossing crosswalks that way. At least I don't think he is. He's learned a lot and rests in God's grace and the heart of the law rather than the letter of the law. But how quickly we can set up interpretations of the law of our own in ways that God never really intended. But in this instant replay moment with Jesus and his disciples crossing this field, Jesus will not give in. Often we feel pressured to cave in to the legalistic demands of others because we want to be spiritual. We want to please God. But it's peer pressure and even pride, not the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And in that vein, Jesus does not rebuke his disciples and instruct them to fall in line with this Sabbath interpretation. Instead, the exchange continues in this vein, Mark 2, verses 25 through 28. But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath." Jesus uses scripture, since the Pharisees were all about it, and reminds them of this story in 1 Samuel chapter 21. David has been anointed king of Israel, but is not yet enthroned as the king of Israel, running from Saul, who has gone off course. He won't give up the throne, though now disqualified from being king. And David and his men are on the run, being pursued by Saul and his men. And David and his men, they're weak and weary and hungry, and they seek refuge at the tabernacle. There in the tabernacle, the house of God of worship, and eventually in the permanent temple, there was a table of showbread, twelve loaves, unleavened, each representing a tribe of Israel, and ultimately representing Jesus, the bread of life. This showbread, it would be baked, then sit there in the tabernacle for a time until it was changed out. It was a holy bread, a ceremonial bread, not to be eaten by just anybody. Not sure if your Costco or Sam's Club has gone back to serving samples, but I love the samples that they give out just to try things out. And if you time it right, you can actually almost have a meal by visiting all the booths throughout the store. Go one by one, take the bite-sized portion, pretend you're interested, but really just have the snack, then move on to the next. Casual grazing of the samples throughout the store. Maybe even slip back for seconds if they don't notice. If something's good, I'll have Aaron get a sample too, even if it has gluten or dairy, which she tries to avoid. I'll just say, just get one and then give it to me when we turn to the corner so I can have seconds. Now, that was not the casual attitude with which the showbread could be approached. It was holy, symbolic, and to be revered. But that day, David and his men were in need. And the only bread available there in the tabernacle was the showbread. So what could be done? Withhold the bread and starve the men, potentially losing the lives of David, the true king, and his men? 
or give the bread and technically break God's law. There were three components to the law, the ceremonial law, the civil law, and the moral law. The ceremonial law guided the ceremonial worship of the Lord, like how to do the sacrifices, guiding the priest's activities. There was the civil law guiding the relationships between people, like if you borrowed my ox to plow with it and that ox died, what you owed me. And there was the moral law guiding the basic right and wrongs, like what would happen if someone chose adultery or other some, some other immoral behavior. The example of David and the showbread, it was a ceremonial law. Laws to keep order and reverence in relation to the worship of God. And in this moment, what was more important? Keeping this bread holy or saving the lives of David and his men? The priest gave it to David, and they survived, and eventually David became king. And Jesus doesn't condemn David for what was done there, or the priest, in fact. He actually uses it as an example to prove his point, which he finally says. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. It was meant to bring man into a closer relationship with God, not to burden man unnecessarily. That is what many of the Pharisees' interpretations and enforcements had done. Man is not placed in some legalistic American ninja warrior challenge. God sitting above and saying, all right, let's see if you can handle this one. Rubbing his hands, trying to see if he can mess you up along the way, delighted to see you overwhelmed, struggling and falling. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. I might struggle in my flesh to uphold the commands of God, and this causes me to cry out and ask for the grace of the Holy Spirit to help me, to walk in the ways of the Lord. But his commands are meant to bring me into fuller life. And Jesus sums up God's heart for it in the Sabbath. It was made for man, not man for it. The heart of God. He knew we would get busy, overwork, greedy. So by stopping one day a week, We are forced to stop, to reflect, and to trust God. When I say, I can do nothing now, so you do something, God, the Sabbath keeps our hearts in a place of trusting God. It's not a day to be lazy or feed the flesh or indulge before going back to work. It's to cultivate a fuller relationship with the Lord and to enjoy the things that He has given us and blessed us with in creation and in life. Sabbath was made for you. God wants you to rest in Him, to trust in Him, to see striving, to see His goodness and faithfulness, to delight in this relationship that He gave to you. As a young missionary, I took Mondays pretty seriously. After a week of ministry, Mondays off, it was my Sabbath. I'd have these intense quiet times, praying, reading, even fasting sometimes, kind of doing the monk thing for a day to really press in to hear from God. And while it was good in some ways, Mondays started to become pretty heavy. They were isolating. They were lonely. They were kind of a burden. And here I lived in this beautiful country, Slovenia, full of hills and fields and hikes and bikes and lakes. So much to discover. And at that time, I read the book Wild at Heart. And it talks about the fact that God created man in a garden and the way that nature speaks to us about God's power, his might, and his beauty, a beautiful gift from God in which God rested on the seventh day to enjoy relationship and fellowship with man right there in the garden. And things changed on my Mondays. I would get out with God. I would ride my bike up a mountain, listen to teaching as I went, reading my little pocket-sized Gideon Bible at the top, overlooking some valley while nestled on a bench in the evergreens. I'd go skiing, enjoying the beauty, the views, the wide-open blue sky, and the blinding white reflection as I, I rode up the ski lift, listening to worship or singing quietly as I did. 
I'd hit the pool doing laps, praying through the tabernacle as I did. Each lap or each set of laps a different prayer focus. I'd find a new town or restaurant and go explore a new part of the country, joining God in an adventure somewhere, wondering what he would have in store that day. Mondays became a highlight in my week and in my relationship with God, in fact. Sabbath was made for us, and in our on-demand world, that can be hard to take. We press on, we keep going, we fill our schedules, we do more, more, more. We don't pull back, we don't take time off, because that means lack of productivity or profitability. But Sabbath was made for us. God wants us to rest. And not just to rest on a, a certain day of the week, which we should put aside, and it might be different for each one of us, but God wants us to rest in who He is, in what He has done, to stop to pause, to reflect, to consider. Are we resting in Him? We don't need to work for our salvation, and we don't need to work to keep His favor. We can rest in the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. His perfect life, His sinless death, His burial in a borrowed tomb, and resurrection three days later. He did the work of salvation, so we can rest in all that He has done. Ironic, they criticize Jesus in this scene for not making his disciples work more. But Jesus didn't need them to work. He delighted that they were delighting in God's law. The Pharisees were all bent out of shape, working to enforce their interpretation of the law this day, the self-appointed moral police, while Jesus and the disciples were on a road trip getting snacks along the way. We love road trips and getting snacks on the journey. I don't get snacks on the way to work Monday to Friday. I don't need to stop for chips or soda or spam musubi on my way home from work. But when we're on a road trip, we like to get snacks for the road. How these disciples were enjoying the journey with Jesus, snacking as they went. And though the religious leaders were critical, Jesus was not, leave them alone. Sabbath was made for man. He was not critical of this. How's your journey? Are you caught up in working for the Lord? Not serving him, not wor- but working to please him. Delight him, get his attention, trying to be on your best behavior to earn his favor, going through the motions of religious duties, but starving for something life-giving on the way. That's different than serving him when you're working for him. I'm not talking about looking for opportunities to indulge the flesh in ungodly ways, but in resting with Jesus in who he is and what he has done. There remains a rest for you. Enter in. Now, what Mark records next goes in line with this. These events may not have been one after the other, but the theme and conflict with the religious leaders continues over the Sabbath. So Mark places this event next in verses uh, 1 through 6 of chapter 3. It says, And he, Jesus, entered the synagogue again. And a man was there who had had a withered hand. So they watched him closely whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Step forward. Then he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And he had looked when he had looked around them at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. The religious leaders have not backed off. They're recording his every move again, this time on the Sabbath in the synagogue, waiting for the instant replay. This almost sounds like a setup. They've shown up, cameras in hand, to watch the instant replay, knowing this man with the withered hand attends this synagogue. And they've been studying Jesus. And they know his heart of compassion. 
that he sees needs in the crowds, that he notices things that have been marred in this fallen world, and that he steps out and does something, extending his healing power because he cares. It's almost like this is a trap. Their goal is to accuse him. They know that Jesus will not be able to resist this opportunity to help this man. Remember, will you, just how good Jesus is, how he delights to do good and show his favor to you. If something ails you, he sees, he knows, he has compassion on you. He can't help but notice your need, even in the crowd of needs in this world. He sees yours, he knows yours, and will attend to yours in his way and in his time. For this man with the withered hand, it's his day, it's his time. Jesus senses the motives of the religious leaders, their goal to accuse him, and he takes the lead this day. He calls the man with the withered hand forward. I can imagine they get their phones out to film. And then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. He flips the script, asking, what was God's heart behind the Sabbath? You wanted my disciples to starve as they walked through the field? That wasn't God's heart. You want this man to wait until tomorrow if I can heal him today and bring God glory? Will God the Father be displeased if I do this right now because it doesn't fit into your interpretation of the Sabbath or your schedule? For them, they said that no work toward healing could take place on the Sabbath. So if you broke something, the bone could not be set. If you cut something, you could stop the bleeding but not stitch it up. Now, women could give birth on the Sabbath. That was allowed. And if a ceremonial circumcision, which was to occur on the eighth day after birth, were to fall on the Sabbath, they could go forward and do it anyway. But other things, well, religious men had laid it all out for you. And doing anything in line with healing someone, well, that was work. And it would have to wait. When Jesus challenges them, they're silent and Jesus is not happy. It says, And when he looked around them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. This is a righteous anger that Jesus has, not one bent out of selfishness or his own ego, but because they were missing the heart of God, and they were called to represent him. It tells us he is also grieved by the hardness of their hearts. It pains him to see this, to have this confrontation, to have all this suspicion and plotting. Their long-awaited Messiah not welcomed, but being viewed with such suspicion, rather than received, embraced, celebrated. Here, their religious leaders have the opportunity to see and learn from Jesus, but their hearts are hard. And they have no interest in learning God's heart in this situation, but instead to uphold their own standard and expectations. Then here is this man in the middle of all this. Some regular guy with a withered hand just coming to the synagogue. Called out by the healer that everyone has been talking about in his neck of the woods. Made to stand up in the middle, all eyes on him, with the bigwigs in attendance. This was his ailment, this withered hand. Usually those with some sort of disability don't want to be pointed out for it. In elementary school, I had a classmate who had a sixth finger on one hand. It just sort of dangled there, the fingernail and first joint of sort of hanging by some extra skin. And he tried his best to hide it, holding it in his hand almost all the time in a clenched fist by his side to hold in his index, his extra finger. Every now and then it would come out or dangle like when he needed both his hands for a task. And as third graders, we thought it was the coolest thing. And he'd go with it sometimes, hanging it to let us inspect it, dangling it to our oohs and ahs, or chasing some girl on the playground with it just as she screamed. 
but for the most part, he didn't want to draw attention to it or to himself. So he'd kind of hide in the corner, or he'd hide that in his fist, clenching it and holding it by his side, or even behind his back, so no one would notice. This guy probably liked that. Something he'd prefer to keep hidden. But Jesus calls him out, and now all eyes are on him. But Jesus does not call out or expose us to humiliate us. He may humble us or ask us to come forward in humility, but if he does, it's because he has a plan to work there. How we tend to keep things covered and hidden, going on with something withered in our lives, not wanting it to be exposed, missing out on a chance for God to work. And this command, stretch out your hand, Jesus will not command us to something that he does not plan to help with or give us power to do. All of Jesus' commands are doable. None of them are setting us up for, for failure. So though his withered hand may not have worked for years, Jesus commands in this moment because Jesus plans to give him the power and grace to be able to do it. So we set up, we step up, we step out, we stretch it out so that Jesus might work. This miracle works right there in the synagogue, and the religious leaders have their footage. They have exactly what they need for their instant replays. They miss the joy of the miracle, but they have their evidence to contain him, and they're gathered around their monitors watching this play over and over again. And it tells us, Then the Pharisees went out immediately and plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Formal rivals, the Pharisees and the Herodians, the religious leaders turn up with the political pole positioners in a united effort to ruin Jesus before he ruins them. The religious leaders missed it. They could have changed their minds. They could have changed their hearts. All the evidence they needed to be changed, and they did not. Hardened hearts instead of broken hearts. God showing his goodness to them, and they missed it. It's God, God's kindness and goodness that leads us to repentance. But a hardened heart, it misses what God intends as a blessing. The religious leaders were banking on Jesus showing up and doing this. At the end of chapter 2, he, was de he declared what he believed. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In this scene in chapter 3, he acted on what he believed. He brought a blessing on the Sabbath despite the plot against him. What we believe will lead to what we practice. And this is something that we need to consider. Our theology will lead to our walk. If we believe that we owe God, we won't walk in grace. If we believe His grace is not sufficient, we will work for His acceptance. If we believe that we're not yet forgiven, we will walk in condemnation. What we believe will lead to what we practice as we walk it out. Proverbs said, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it flows the issues of life. And yet it goes further. What you believe about salvation, or the return of Christ, or church leadership, or the Holy Spirit, all these things can impact what you live out and how you live it out. Because faith and lack of faith will play itself out in our lives. This man in the synagogue, he believed that Jesus could and would make him whole. What do you believe? What withered situation can you present to Jesus even now, stretching it out to him, believing that he is sufficient, that he is powerful, that he is willing, that he is gracious, that he is moving, that he is wise, that he is faithful. Stretch it out to him. May you see his goodness toward you in this way. So Lord, we thank you that you created us and that in that you also rested with us and called man to rest to, not apart from you, but with you. 
as in the garden on the seventh day, rested from your work, that you might enjoy us, your handiwork. Forgive us, Lord, for making our own laws and rules to live by, rather than living in the simplicity of faith in your commands. We want to rest in you, Lord, for your work is powerful, your resources sufficient, your ways wise, and your salvation complete. Help us to believe and walk in the ways that you intended. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.